Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed... What do I want to call you this week? I like, you know, I like calling you something. Um, and I don't have, I don't have very much. Um, Ed, uh, Lambirani Condon. <laughs> okay. Do you know why I called you Lambirani? Uh, it is a delicious thing. Because we were talking about Indian food before, and that's the kind of Indian food you like to have. So I it just, is true. I, I like really... a good Lambirani. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is that? Um, it's, it, it's, uh, it's a curried lamb dish where it's, it's cooked in with the rice. So instead of, you know, you adding sort of meat and sauce to rice, it's, it's, in, it's, it's cooked integrally that way. It's very nice. Oh, okay. So lamb fried rice. Uh, I'm going to get in trouble if I say yes to that <laughs> somewhere, but let's just say for a very basic understanding. Sure. Okay, great. Well, we are, um, this is the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. And this actually is the second great Catholic conversation this week that Ed and I are going to have. Because we, Ed, we just spent an hour talking to each other, didn't we? We did, although I would quibble. I don't think this is the second great Catholic conversation. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm hoping this will be the first great Catholic conversation. I, I think that our our last run at this particular one was more heat than light. Yeah, we just we did a take of the show. We did a take of almost the whole show, actually. I mean, I think my I think my counter said something like forty eight minutes. Or oh no, we 50. were at a full hour. I, I... <laughs> okay, so we did an hour's worth of show, and uh, and then we realized we had to scrap it. It just was not pretty, and uh, and so we are back for what is for us uh, the second hour of the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation, and for you though the first hour. But that's good and lucky for you because this is going to be the one where we nail it. I, I am confident this is going to be a fascinating conversation. And JD, um, has anything happened to you today that you would like to talk about? <laughs> I was going to banter for a little while about your coronavirus. Oh, that's fair enough. I yeah, I am I am in quarantine, which is nice. Um, <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah. It's a now, little... how long does a person have to quarantine these days? Because not very much, right? I mean, we don't... Uh, isn't it like um, after you feel better, it's supposed to be five days, I think. Okay. And so do you feel better? Well, no. But okay, so I'm confident still... I will feel better any minute now. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. Um, great. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you have um, the coronavirus, but um, I had an experience... How's that for a transition? I had today an experience that Ed... Um, ticked me off. I was pretty ticked earlier today, and um, and and I'll tell you why, if you'd like. I would, JD. I would like to hear about this, and I I want to stress that I am ready to to hear about this in a in a receptive and calm, even understated frame of mind. <laughs> and I would just like to say that as I tell you about it, um, and you respond to it. Um, I would like to receive your responses in a way that is uh, respectful of what you have to say and a way that um, takes it seriously without um, what could be characterized as sort of a, a mockery or, um, or, uh, or, or trolling, even if you will. Uh, I, what could go wrong? I affirm you, Ed. Oh, thank you. Uh, J.D., I'm, I'm pleased that you affirm me. I affirm you in turn, and hopefully God will rock with us as we roll with him in the course of this <laughs> podcast. Okay, so I was pretty mad. Uh, I, I was 
<laughs> I was pretty mad today, and I tell you why. Okay, so I had to uh, I had to run some errands today, and uh, you know as one does, I had to get a haircut. I had to go to the bank, which I mean you think it's twenty twenty two, what are you going to the bank for? But I, I had to go to the bank, and um, yeah, so I had to go to the bank. I had to get a haircut. I had to do some other things. And I was sort of running these errands ahead of picking my son Davy up at school. Um, and Davy gets out of school. He goes to like you know half a day preschool, uh, and he gets out of school at twelve o'clock. So you know, I was running these errands and. One of the things that I had to do on my errands was um, stop and get um, a sleeve of low-gluten hosts. So our son, Max, is uh, you know a celiac and has all these sensory issues, and he's going to make his first communion soon. So we have to practice at home, like the receiving of, a, a consecrated ho- of an unconsecrated host. And he, he just needs repetition is the mother of um, – is repetition the mother of anything? I feel like – familiarity maybe repetition is the mother of familiarity maybe i don't think that's something that's, but, yeah. Made but i end. affirm i affirm that you have said that um repetition being the mother of familiarity you know we just need to repeat over and over again the reception of an unconsecrated host to practice for when we will receive the body and blood of um, jesus christ our lord in in the form of the host so i needed to get a sleeve of unconsecrated low gluten hosts uh for maxi and so there was a parish kind of in the neighborhood where i was where i was running errands where i know um a, a, a couple of the guys who live there so the parish is and i <clears throat> if you live in colorado you're going to be trying to play a game called speculate about what parish jd's talking about and, um, you know, you probably will figure it out. But the parish is um, administered by a religious institute, and um, there are a couple guys who live there, and I know some of them, and I, I'd say we're friends even. So, you know, I stopped at the parish. And I, I could have, I suppose, like texted the pastor or texted one of the guys and just said, like, hey, uh, I, I'm in the parking lot or I'm in the church or I'm at the Adoration Chapel, and could I bum a, a, a sleeve of local and host? But I didn't. I went into the parish office. And uh, so I go into the parish office. There's a little room there that says, uh, like a sign that says receptionist. So I go to the receptionist, and uh, and uh, and I said, hey, I was just uh, I-, I was just wondering if like Father, I'm going to give him different names, but like Father Bill or Davy or and that's my son, Father Bill or Petey or uh, I love Father that there Danny can't be a Father Davy because that's your son's name. <laughs> <laughs> it would complicate the story. Not that I think I'll name the priest again, but it would complicate the story. You know, uh, so yeah, I was just wondering if Father uh, Bill or Manny or um, uh, Daniel Tiger or any of the other priests are around. You know, uh, you know, I just wondering if any of the priests are around. You know, and uh, and the, the receptionist seemed mad. Mad. Yeah, she seemed mad when I said, I mean, just something about her. She, like, put down her... Like, viscerally angry, or... Yeah, she was, like, working on something, and she's just, like, she kind of, like... <sighs> and you know what she said to me, Ed? I don't. Oh, I thought you would, because we... I told you the story. You know, you party. have told me this story before, but I'll be honest with you, we then proceeded to have such an outrageous argument for an hour. We really did. We really did. Okay, so okay, so I go in and I say, I was just wondering if any of the priests are around, blah blah blah, and uh, and uh, and she's she's like scowls and she, do you have an appointment? And I was like, no, I don't have an appointment. I, I don't need an. I don't know that I need. You know, I don't. I don't need like an appointment. Like I need to sit down and talk for a half an hour about like my whatever. I just you know I just need some out. So I said like, no, I don't have an appointment. I was really just wondering if any of the priests are around. You know, if if they're around, great. If not, no. And uh, and and she says, uh, she says, well. I'm not their secretaries. And I was like, I didn't know. 
I didn't know what that meant. But by that point, I started to feel like I had done something wrong. Like the receptionist just seemed ticked. You know what I mean? And she's like, I'm not the recep, I'm not their secretary. I wouldn't know. And I would have thought that the lady, you know, would know. But, but uh, she says, I'm going to have to go down the hall. And I said like, well, okay. <laughs> you know, Heaven right. forfend. Right, exactly. So I'm going to have to go down the hall. And uh, and uh, let me stop the story. I, um, for as long as we have been making podcasts together, uh, I have been talking about the fact that it is hard to work at a parish and it's hard to work at a diocese. And it is. That many lay people who work in parish or diocesan ministry carry a unique cross because um, there's a weird, you know, ecclesial culture is weird. Ecclesial politics are weird. Being a lay person in those contexts can sometimes be a, a challenge and, um, you know, it can be a kind of clerical culture that doesn't, you know, in which you kind of don't always feel like you fit in and just there are various aspects of working in parish or diocesan ministry that can be frustrating. One of which can be sort of being uh, un or, you know, chronically un or under, feeling chronically un or underappreciated or unseen and like all your sort of faults are on display and criticized. So I, I, I want to sort of qualify the story by saying I think that working in a parish and a chantry is hard and there are a lot of people who do it um, well and for the sake of the gospel because they love Christ and his church. You know what makes and their job hard, J.D.? What's that? People who have <laughs> the same or similar jobs and act like total jerks. Well, yeah, I think that's right. Um, so she says, I'm going to have to go down the hall. And I was like, okay. You know, I mean, I didn't really – the lady was kind of mad. Like I felt like at that point I did something wrong by asking if any of the priests were around, you know. Um, like do you ever just have that feeling where, you know, it just becomes clear that you – Shouldn't have done something. You you are inconveniencing this person by presenting th- this person whose job it is, as you said, receptionist to receive people into the parish building. Was annoyed that you had presented yourself and were in need of receiving. <laughs> yes, that is what it is, right? Right. And kind of shame um, on you. Inc- incredulous at the idea that I would walk into um, a, a parish office and want to talk to a, a priest, which it would you know. <laughs> That's who works who there, do you right? think um, you are? Yeah, that's where you find him, right? So uh, she says, I'm going to have to go down the hall. So I say, okay. And so I'm kind of standing there, and then she goes, come with me. And I was like, all right. So we uh, walk down the hall a little bit, and she shows me into this, um, like, uh, a receiving room. She shows me um, she shows me into what I would only call as, like, a, par- a parlor, right? She shows me into a parlor. Um, it's a room with some couches and easy chairs, and it's, everything is very 80s. The, 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 the furniture is very loud. Um, but it reminded me kind of, actually, it reminded me very much of, um, you have been to Rome and you have been to, um, the Dicasteries of the Holy See. And, um, you know how, if you have an appointment to see someone in some office of the Roman Curia, oftentimes the secretary or whoever will walk you into this, like you'll be walking down the hallway and then they'll just open this door that you didn't even know was there. And then there's this like beautifully appointed kind of living room and they make you, they tell you to sit there and you sit and wait and there's a coffee table book and then the person comes and you have to stand up and it's all very formal. You, you have this experience. I have, I, I quibble with your use of the word beautifully appointed. <laughs> okay. Um, and usually my, Ornately. if I feel like I've been, if, if I, if I, that has happened to me and if I've ever felt that like I've been left to rot in the sort of private reception room of a Tecaster of the Lacey. There's a great get out of jail free card, which is which just is start smoking. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. They Someone will, they will immediately, immediately come see to you. Immediately. Oh, really? Yeah. And they will say, you can't smoke here. I, I'm sorry. I wasn't aware that, that smoking had been banned in the offices of the Roman Curia. Um, I, I beg your pardon. I, am I being seen now or shall I step outside? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, so I didn't smoke while I was waiting in the little room. 
because uh, I don't smoke. Um, but I uh, I was waiting there, you know, and I felt kind of like I was in that room, except except um, it was like I was in that room, but maybe like it was an, it was like a back room also of like a craft store that had like a lot of kind of weird bric-a-brac to it and. Just like kind of um, something in there was giving me a headache and I couldn't even identify what it was. It was like a strong air freshener or um, maybe just like a, a woman's bottle of perfume had spilled in the carpet and no one had ever cleaned it. Something was not right in there, you know. And so she closes the door and she leaves me and it's, you know, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, six minutes. And I was getting a little bit frustrated because um, I had to go pick up my son from school. I, you know, we're getting closer to the time. I had just wanted to see if the priests were there. And I, I guess I thought like... I'd go into the parish office, I'd say, is any of the, are any of the priests around? And, like, you know, maybe one of the priests would sort of pop his head out of his office and say, oh, hey, J.D., what do you need? And I'd say, oh, could I bum a sleeve hose for me? Like, that's kind of how I thought it was going to happen, you know? Or I thought that I would go and say, are any of the priests around? And the lady would say, no, none of the priests are around right now. Could I take a message? Or all the priests are in appointments right now. Could I take a message? Or, you know, just something that would be. But instead, I found myself in this chamber. And uh, and I was kind of waiting and uh, the, starting to get a little feel a little trapped in there. The, the room Ed was closing in on me, and uh, and then I heard some voices in the hall. And so I thought, okay, well, a priest um, is coming, I guess. And the door opened, and um, it wasn't a priest. Um, I'm pausing so that you can like say something. So just like, <laughs> oh, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I was trying to listen with polite and respectful I attention. Know. You're doing a good job. Thank you. Um, I, 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 Even if you say, oh, no. no. I, actually, it was a you sweet summer child. You didn't actually imagine a priest was just going to spontaneously <laughs> present himself in one of those waiting rooms, did you? I did think that it was possible that the, 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 the priest would go. But it wasn't they don't. They don't put you in one of those rooms if there's any danger <laughs> father is going to find you. That, well, I didn't know. Okay, so that's the, that's the function of those holding cells is we've got a live one here who thinks he's just going to stumble into a parish and see a priest, put him in the drunk tank effectively. Right, exactly. Put him in two, you know, and so yeah. so this other lady comes in, not the first lady, the receptionist, but this other lady comes in and uh, she says, have a seat. And I said, uh, no, I, <laughs> I don't want to have a seat. I just Wait, when she wondering... says have a seat, were you pacing the room? Were you? No, I was just sort of standing were you sitting down examining... and she just wanted to assert that she could tell you what to do. So she said, have a seat, even though you're this, just to make it clear that you were going to be do you were going to do what you were told i was looking at the bookshelf there was a bookshelf in there and i was looking at the bookshelf and the bookshelf was interesting to me because it was um it was clearly the place where they put books that people had given them it was just a weird collection of books and like mm-hmm. you know some of them existed in triplicate or quadruplicate or mm-hmm. whatever you know it's just mm-hmm. so i was looking at the books mm-hmm. and uh this lady comes in she's take a seat and i said no no i don't want to take a seat i had just been wondering if a priest is here and i don't you know and uh and uh, she says well um she says, well, I'm one of the secretaries. And I said, okay, uh, she, do you have an appointment? And I said, no, I don't have an appointment. I just, um, you know, I just popped in. I'm on my way to pick up my kid from school. And I just popped in because I want to see if a, I, I want to see a priest for, for a minute. And um, and she says, well, please have a seat. And I said, no, I, I'm not going to sit down. I I need to go. And um, and I guess, I guess if I need an appointment, I have to call. And she said, well, I'm one of the secretaries. So it's... Uh, so I can make you an appointment. And I said, well, I don't, because I didn't need an appointment, Ed, right? I mean, like, I'll just go somewhere else or I'll go to, you know, Gherkin's, the religious supply store where the guy would have bought the things anyway. You know, I didn't didn't need an appointment. Um, so uh, <clears throat> so she says, uh, she, she kind of gets out her pad there and she says, like, well, um, tell me what it is you need and I can arrange an appointment for you. And I was just like, it was just so, 
I was mad. I was just so frustrated. Like I had come in there to ask if I could see a priest. I didn't. Uh, I didn't expect that I that that a priest would be around just because I went there and asked to see one. But I just was wondering, you know, like at the parish office at the church, if there might be a priest there. It's a religious order. There's a bunch of priests who work there. If there might be a priest there, so I could kind of bum this thing off of him. And you and felt became, rather as if you had turned up on Capitol Hill and demanded to see your congressman. Yeah. Well, yes, I felt I had the feeling. The way that I was being sort of screened, I had the feeling that I had done something wrong, and I just didn't like it. Like I just felt increasingly like I had I had violated some protocol or thrown the place into disarray. That these various people had to come and see me in my chamber, and and uh, and and all of these. I just like I went in just thinking, oh, I'll go see if a guy that I know is in there, and instead yeah. I ended up just well, feeling like feeling stupid. Like Shady, I just the parish curia exists. So that crazies <laughs> like you can't just wander in off the street and expect to see a prayer. I mean, can you imagine what would have happened if they hadn't been there? If they, if if you know, Gertrude or Marjorie or whatever it was that the receptionist's name was wasn't there to, you know, harumph and you know block you from. I mean, anything could have happened. You you might have asked for confession. You could have wanted to have you right. know, one of your children baptized. You might have, JD. You might not even have been Catholic. Right, I may you have might not have had the envelopes. You might not be giving envelopes, and you might have gotten to talk to a priest without filling in the envelopes. I mean, and, <laughs> and so you now understand why I felt heroes, JD. Uh, These are the heroes of parish bureaucracy. <laughs> I felt. I defeated. hope they're making six figures each, because this is this is what Christ intended for His church when He set it up. I tell you, I felt defeated, and I felt. Um, dumb. Well, and, then their um, job has been well executed because that and, was the intention. Uh, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, finish my story here, and then and then you can do your thing. Um, <laughs> I, I I felt defeated and I felt dumb and and I felt frustrated. Honestly, I felt mad because um, I just wanted to see if I could see a priest, and it became this whole thing where I was doing something, being I was inconveniencing. The, the first lady, I was taking off the second lady. I should have known to call to make an appointment. And she needs to know what I need. And all of this stuff. And it's just like, I, I didn't feel mad about me. Like I did. I felt mad about me because I felt dumb. But I, mo mostly I felt mad because if I was a person who was having, you know, I just was there because I wanted to get the hosts. I could do it a different way um, and get the hosts. It's not a big deal. But if I was a person who was having a spiritual crisis or if I was a person who didn't practice the faith and wanted to practice the faith, or if I was a person who needed to go to confession or whatever, I I would not have come back to that place. Like I would have thought this, I don't belong here. I don't, this this, this place doesn't want me. And um, and that makes me really mad. Like I talked a couple of weeks ago on the show about how we need to, I need to feel like I know, understand better sort of if, in the work of evangelization, if all of us are responsible for the proclamation of the gospel, what is the place at which a person makes a kind of ecclesial connection in the in the process of evangelization? So I share my faith with my behind, you know, my cross the fence neighbor, and you know, o over drinks, I share my faith and I say, you know, you got you got to come hear more about the gospel. Sort of like, where do I bring them? I've talked about sort of we that as the church becomes more evangelically focused, that's going to be something that we're going to have to answer is sort of where. Where is there an ecclesial proclamation of the gospel? And uh, and that's a true that's a true thing. But in this case, I might ha well have been a person sort of walking in to the parish office and saying, hi, I'd like to see a priest because I'd like to 
be a Catholic, you know, live the faith, know the faith, do the thing for which the church has the mission, turn away from sin and and live the gospel, you know, and um, and I couldn't. Like I was just thwarted, mm-hmm. and that was a terrible. I mean, it was it was terrible. It was terrible. I don't want to um, say that these uh, secretaries who I encountered were malicious, that they didn't want me to see the priest or something like that. It was reflective to me of a culture um, or, or a culture, a disposition, a mindset, and a mentality at which sort of evangelization and the church's apostolic mission is not primary. Not because I couldn't see a priest, because again, maybe the, I don't have a right to see a priest anytime I walk into the parish office, but because I was not, not only was I not welcomed, I was not, I was not wanted there. I did not, it was clear that I was not wanted to be there. And it just, it it pissed me off, man. I mean, we can't live that way. No, no, I would agree. It is, um, I, I have had at different times, similar experiences, uh, in parishes, although I would, I, um, I, I want to say this in a in a measured <laughs> and thoughtful way um, that is reflective of my whole mind and my uh, my considered temperament on the subject, JD. Then I would say that this is a problem that is, if not um, if not entirely unique to a particular kind of suburban American Catholicism, is certainly far more uh, prevalent in in that part of the world than anywhere else and i haven't i simply haven't encountered it anywhere else and we have mentioned before on on podcasts that we have done that there is a weird kind of professionalization and bureaucratization of parish life in the united states particularly in sort of what i would call middle class or reasonably affluent suburbia Big um, parish. Let's call it sort of big parish. Big parish. And yeah. uh, it does not exist anywhere else that I've encountered in the world in other countries, um, simply because you, it cannot. you're not from this land. I mean, right here. We're not, not going to go down that, that. I have lived in other countries. Yes. In fact, I've lived most of my life in other countries. And this is not a reality there. That there, a priest, a pastor will be lucky if he has a part-time paid secretary. Uh, much less a full-time paid secretary. And the idea that you have um, people fulfilling an entire curia's worth of professional functions in the local parish is simply unthinkable. Uh, it It is my opinion, it is my considered opinion, JD, that uh, money is the curse of the church in the United States. And what oh, I mean by that How is so? this. Um, Somewhere in the last 60 years, and I'm, I'm always skeptical of saying, putting dates in reference to Vatican II, because I then think that people wrongly draw the inference that it's cause and effect with the council when actually the council was, and I've said this before, I think not only responsive to most of the problems that are blamed on the council, the council was responding to them. Um, and I think in many instances, the council could be said to have almost come too late or at least didn't come as soon as it might have to address mm-hmm. these problems. Um, but anyway, in the last 60 years, we have seen uh, the, the professionalization of parish life in the United States and uh, with with lay people taking up on a sort of full-time basis jobs that used to be done by uh, a superfluity of priests, that you would have, you know, four or five priests in a parish and they could, they could do 
all sorts of things um, in terms of catechetical formation, in terms of community outreach, in terms of running different parish ministries and stuff. And as the pool of available clerics to these things shrank, lay people took their places, but not on a voluntary basis, increasingly on a sort of trained full-time professional basis. And, you know, we know a lot of people who work in these roles and they are tireless servants, often in incredibly adverse circumstances. Um, and they are, they are to be much admired um, and thanked for their work. But it is an unusual model that has grown up in the United States and in particular parts of the United States. And it's not a sustainable model that, you know, you tend to, you tend to observe and you can see this in other part in the church and other parts of the world, that the last thing to go is the money and that you often end up with a very, um, uh, an increasingly top heavy institutional model because you lose the people before you lose the money. And where the people start draining away, then you have to rely more on, um, if you like, the sort of institutional church to supply things that would, in a perfect world, be supplied by the organic participation of the faithful. Um, and that's simply not a model that's sustainable in this country. And we're seeing parish closures. We are seeing, um, you know, declines in mass attendance and in, in all of the sort of institutional disaffiliation brackets that, that we often talk about. And so it's not a... It's not a sustainable model. I think it's something of a cultural and historical fluke that was caused by an eclipse of circumstances in the last 60 years. But one of the real problems that it can cause is it creates... Um, I, I, want, I want to describe this accurately. No, hyperbolize. Please, go ahead. I, I promise not to, uh, not to retort to your hyperbole with a hyperbole of criticism. It can create a mentality where... Hold on one second. You ever um, meet a couple or you ever like out with Rachel and a couple and the couple is very clearly going to sort of couples counseling and you could tell because they are using this sort of stilted... Oh, I language, feel language, a language of, you know, well, and, uh, and I thank you for expressing <laughs> with clarity right. how you yeah. feel. Right. That's what I feel like take two of this show is rapidly becoming and I <laughs> love it. I want to lean so deep into that. I, I want... I, I, I affirm you and I value you for what you are saying now. And um, <laughs> I think how careful you're being is hilarious. No, I, I, I am trying. Yeah, I am perhaps overreacting to fights we may or may not have had. Well, what happened last... in the last show, guys, what happened in the show that you didn't get to listen to is basically like we both went off on this topic effectively half cocked. And we probably agree on 70 percent of what we had to say about it. But. We we just went at it in different styles, and so it ended up just being it wasn't good. Uh, it wasn't good radio because it was just like a lot of I don't know. How would you describe it? A lot of shouting and interrupting, darling. Yes, that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you but never not let like me the finish. Kind of... You don't really care what I think. You only want to <laughs> throw what I'm trying to say me? back in my face. Right. Exactly. You don't have to. You don't have to insult my intelligence. Just to yeah. So anyway, it was it was uncomfortable radio. Like if there was a show called uncomfortable radio we could we could get it on the thing, we could we have done that yeah, yeah okay. anyway no so what i wanted to say is what we have in a lot of places i think that allows a situation in an example like the one you had today and i mean it's not atypical let's let's say that for everyone no, that, i don't think it is it, it's certainly my first experience of that but i think that's often because if i visit in in much of my life if i visited a parish i was doing so sort of in my professional work working in a chancery or if i visit a parish it might be as a journalist so just like 
guy who goes to parish is not something that I have experienced before. But when I came home and I told my wife, this is what I experienced at the parish, she's like, oh, yeah, a lot of those people are. Uh, but I had not, I just hadn't experienced that. Right. In this way. And, yeah. and again, saving everything we have already said about people we know who do good work in, right. in parish and institutional life. The reason people like, and I'm just going to continue to call them Marjorie and Gladys, um, <laughs> who you met today, uh, are able to exist and draw salary from the church while basically being offended at the idea that someone might want to come into the parish during working hours and disturb their, you know, game of online solitary or whatever it was they were doing that was so hellfire important. Um, the reason that can happen and be, and happen enough that it's become almost a sort of cliche of American parish life is because we have developed first an attitude in the pews of the parish, which is, well, I don't really do evangelizing. Um, you know, that's that's what the priests do, or that's what missionaries do, or that's what the DRE does, or that's what, you know, whatever it is. What I, what I do is I put the envelopes in, and then I pay for them, and then they they do that stuff. And so I'm my participation in the evangelization is in a monthly direct debit. And the problem with that is, first of all, it makes people wildly uncomfortable with the idea that they might have to announce the gospel with not not in the sort of faux fake fake Saint Francis quote about and use words if necessary. Yeah, no, that's using true, yeah. words, right, using yeah, words, like actually, announcing like, Jesus yeah, Christ, right. the death right, and uh -huh. resurrection and yeah. person of Jesus Christ with your right. words. Yeah, that's what evangelization is. Everything else is just being nice. Um, the reason people are so uncomfortable with that is they, we have adopted a sort of big government mentality, which is well, I pay my taxes for other people to do this stuff. Let them do it. And then you get a separation. You get a you you get the unmooring in parish life between the people in the pews and the sort of professional curial class. And what happens and, and that's a natural separation that occurs because what's happened is the parish has stopped envisaging itself as what it is technically, which is a single coherent portion of the people of God who exist as a community, and it's become basically... Oriented towards a mission, right? Oriented so they, towards right. An, a very specific mission, which is the, the proclamation of the gospel. Right. right. And instead, what you've arrived at is a kind of stable body politic. And yeah. That, that, never produces, <laughs> that never produces an authentic Christian witness, because that's not what it's there to do. It's there, it can, it, the self-conception is primarily one of social order, not one of evangelical zeal. I think that's a good observation, and I think I agree with most of it. I, where I would, I don't think that those ladies uh, were playing online solitaire. And here's what I mean: um, I suspect that those that that lady who was aggrieved that I interrupted her perceives that she's extremely busy getting out the, um, getting out the bulletin or making sure that the confirmation sponsor forms have all the paperwork that go along with them or recording the baptisms in the parish baptismal record book in the right way or whatever it is that she whatever it is in her portfolio of work i suspect that she feels that she's very busy with those things and those things are important and then and that you know i am by sort of coming there unannounced interrupting this this administrative work that needs to be done for the parish and to a certain extent i empathize with that here here's what i think happened and i i, I think it I, I think you've described what happens you when you have a sort of professionalization um, you begin to get this separation where it's like you have where where most people don't feel uh, uh, where many people don't have to feel sort of responsible for catechesis or kind of even upkeep of the parish or those kinds of things where we can easily become and I find myself doing this easily become 
consumers at the parish, customers at the parish, instead of sharers in the mission altogether. Um, I, I think that I think that does, and then there's a certain class of people who are sort of responsible for everything, and we sort of think, well, they're the ones who are responsible for it. I think that does happen. Um, the way I think that happened is this. I think that the parish in the United States is designed, um, the, 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 the parish office in the United States, the administrative offices of the parish in the United States are designed for a much thicker and more robust, for existing in a much thicker and more robust Catholic culture than the one in which we live. So if, um, if we live in a sort of immigrant, you know, like East Coast immigrant Catholic neighborhood circa, um, circuit let's just say circa godfather 2 um and sort of the whole godfather uh, 2 was set in las vegas but okay no the cat the other parts of it godfather 2 has two sets settings oh right? you're talking about the you're talking about the robert and yeah yeah, timeline. Yeah, yeah. yeah 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 oh okay mm-hmm. right so if we live in that kind of experience right where it's like the whole thing is kind of imbued with this catholic ethos um then um, then people don't have the expectations. Uh, the parish doesn't have the expectations of providing sort of programmatic answers to basic elements of the Christian life, and people don't have the expectation that the parish will. Um, in as much as there's catechesis, it happens in the school, which is not sort of quite the same as the parish office, or it happens in the home and people are, you know, teaching their children the faith or have a family rosary or not. But, I mean, the sort of idea is that these things are happening Um you know, that the parish office is the place sort of that takes care of the priests and takes care of the um, the liturgical sacramental stuff. Um, uh, you know, and so it would be very natural that at the parish office, the work is mostly sort of tied up with, you know, typing up the baptismal records or whatever. Can I make an observation? Yeah. It must be an incredible parish that you stopped by today. That, <laughs> right. that in the in, the, in our current society, where by all accounts baptisms are down, marriages like, are down, everything apart from funerals in the life of the church is down at a sort of institutional level across the board. Your parish is baptizing well, so my many children that, that it requires multiple full-time well, listen, paid members of that, staff just to that, do the paperwork, which is name, date, might be, minister, and witness. That, that may well be about Hot damn, I, JD. I, I it must I'm, be a thriving, white-hot nuclear reactor. My of point is Catholicism. That may well be a, a, a that may well be that may well be a, look. And I have never had to do eight hours of name of da- name date date entry. You know, um, it may I would, well be. I'm just gonna. I don't know what <laughs> parish this is. I've never been to a parish church in Littleton, Colorado, or wherever you were. In, I'm not just saying it was. I don't want to say what it no, is. No, I know. I'm just. Colorado I don't know where you live. Yeah, uh, so yeah. I'm picking Denver areas that I I'm, I'm picking names Aurora yeah, yeah. or whatever. I, I've never been, but I I would be willing to bet. There aren't eight hours of sacramental record my work in is, a year. My point is, I'm sure the lady feels very busy with whatever it is that she's doing, whatever it is that she's doing. And I'm sure she thinks it's very important. And I'm it comes sure from, she thinks she's very important. And, That's definitely an impression she left you with. And she thinks the work is very important. And I think that comes from an institutionalist approach to the church, an ecclesiology, a, a sort of a, an, an ecclesiology that presumes, a Christendom ecclesiology that presumes a thick, rich, robust Catholic culture in which... Um, sort of the the um, uh, the sort of ca- the Catholic stuff is sort of presumed, and therefore oh, we're all Catholics. So I'm just doing this administrative stuff. A- and now we're in a very different culture, um, and uh, and and 
a culture that requires a recognition of like the church's missionary obligation in what is effectively missionary, um, in what is effectively sort of missionary territory, where very many people don't don't practice the faith and those kinds of things. And I think in many places there has not been a sort of training and reorientation shift, not just of the personnel, but of the whole identity of the parish to move away from the model. If you build it, they will come, even if you insult them and make them feel bad when they get there. Um, to uh, uh, th- we exist together to invite people into a living relationship uh, with the Lord, and we have some missionary identity, you know, in which, through which we do that. I have um, a question. S- yes, and forgive me if you feel I'm picking holes in your. No, no. In your because I was about to say that there is some lacuna there. So go ahead. Um, you you say that you think that part of this is a, a con- an institutional conception of the parish, which relies on a sort of Godfather II era understanding of a robust right, Catholic right. culture where a lot of catechesis is being done in the home and the parish can ha- afford to have a sort of institutional mentality of sacramentalization. You're here to get the stuff. Mm-hmm. That's If I've understood you correctly, that's what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want to put words in your mouth, honey. I want to make sure you're, that's what you... <laughs> Okay. I'm not sure that this tiptoeing around each other is actually better radio than the thing we did before. Oh, you see, I thought I was being almost offensively sarcastic there. <laughs> you are. Uh, anyway, what I was going to say is, okay, fine. If that's the case, what do you think Gladys or Marjorie would have said if you had said, well, actually what I need is a sleeve of low gluten hosts to practice first communion well, with I my son. Well, I think she would have been scandalized by the notion of that. So this is where I was going, right? So we have, we're in this sort of weird place where the church needs to be sort of missionary. And so that model doesn't work, but we have professionalized the missionary kind of thing. And we have, I think, taken it up in such a way that we often expect that things will be in John Paul, the John Paul II, John Paul II sort of railed against this. We often expect that things will be sort of pro, that, that the work of the church will be done very programmatically and very sort of by a professional class, where if I had said to her, oh, I just need a sleeve of hosts, she, I think she would have been conf- confused and somewhat offended by my presumption that it would be okay for me to have some hosts, you know what I mean? Like I, I don't think she would have been confused. I think she definitely would have been horrified, but well, she would have she felt would have merely the, justified that, of course, this is why I stick him in the waiting right, room for crazies. <laughs> yeah, right, because of my pluck, right? So, um, so, so there, so there is a problem with with um, certain aspects of sort of like parish professional culture, to be sure. Um, you seem to think, Ed, that that um, that the problem is uh, that, that you seem to think that like. Um, I, I think we both agree that there is a problem with prayer professional culture often, that there's a gatekeeping mentality that is not evangelical and that needs um, and, and that is not oriented towards the church's mission and a sort of institutionalist mentality that is not that does not reflect an ecclesiology of communion. I think we agree about those kinds of things. Oh, strongly um, agree. Where I think we might disagree is um, I um, I am not convinced. I, well, let me say what I think you think. You, insofar as I can tell, seem to think that um, the tendency to develop sort of per large parish staffs and professional sort of a professional class of people who work in the church in one way or another, you seem to think that that in itself um, necessarily um, uh, fosters um, a, a consumeristic mindset among many parishioners and a sort of entitled or authoritarian mindset among other parishioners. I think I get the impression that you seem to think that the, the that the um, I think it's both cause and effect. Yes, I think the entire necess- existence a, of a professional a of necessity. I think the entire existence of a sort of professional parochial class is, and again, saving people I know who serve in this in this 
institution. But you think there are exceptions. Very, no, I don't even think that they are necessarily individual exceptions. I think it's perfectly possible to say that many people, uh, apart from the ones that I know and respect personally, but to even say many people are doing this with the right spirit and working in these jobs with the right spirit and for the right reasons. All of that can be true. And yet I think the entire premise of a, of an institutional professional parochial class is both cause and effect of a very, very bad culture in parish life that it encourages and is caused by in, a, in and a, of itself, a, a middle-class bourgeois desire to outsource the parts of the faith that make people uncomfortable. And usually the parts that actually involve having to do something with other people involving talking about Jesus. So for example, earlier this week, I put on the Twitters more or less to prove to myself that my priors were right about people. I said on the Twitters, the only thing weird about evangelizing in the street and door to door is how uncomfortable it makes most American Catholics. And Lo and behold, I was right because all the responses were, oh, this doesn't work. It's, you know, it would be very, you know, people would be put off by this. No one, you know, not where I live. It's like, you know what? You're right. I think a lot of people would be put off by this because you know what? They don't want to be disturbed. They don't want the disturbing idea of the evangelization in their little quiet town. That it's uncomfortable that for someone to say, actually, the entire way in which we have constructed our society and live our lives in our liberal, democratic, consumeristic, free market society has a gigantic gaping hole at the middle, and we need to address it. And what we need to do to address it is to announce constantly and explicitly, not silently with you know nice actions, but explicitly in terms, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, people don't want to do that. And people don't want to hear it. And you know what? That's the mission. And so, yeah, I do think that the entire concept of a sort of professional parochial class, saving that it can be staffed even entirely by fantastic people with fantastic intentions, is representative of a flawed understanding of what the parish actually is and should be. And what the parish is and should be is a portion of the people of God united in faith, sacraments, and discipline who are themselves all participating in the call to evangelize. I have seen this. I I have seen this. So I I think a lot of what you're saying, um, <laughs> I, I don't want to get on, I, well, I'm going to. Um, to get on a soapbox, I often get on. I have seen this, and I saw this when I lived in the Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska, which has parishes with very small staffs, or or in many cases, you know, just a sort of secretary, but no sort of ministry staff. Parishes with very small staffs. Are you allowed to and, do that in the United States? Yeah, right. And lots of people who sort of volunteer for various aspects of overseeing volunteering education really? and catechesis really offering their time and so um i i have seen this and i think that it is um i think i think that it there are criticisms of it and drawbacks of it and elements of it that are, are problematic but nothing is perfect which i but i myself saw that there are many elements of it that allow a parish to have life and actually life that can be quite beautiful but it is dependent upon another notion of the parish's identity, which is territoriality. That is to say, a parish is by its nature territorial. And if you know who is a part of the parish, 
and that's somewhat circumscribed by geography, uh, it's sort of much easier to um, uh, have expect to, to set and have expectations. When parish affiliation is fluid and volitional, people I, I think people go to the place where they are sort of being fed, and that engenders um, uh, being fed, so to speak, and that engenders kind of uh, an approach to parish organization on the part of pastors, which feeds a kind of consumeristic identity, par- parochial identity. I don't so know that I, don't I necessarily agree with that. Without the other. I don't think you can easily have, um, I, I don't think you can easily have a parish which is alive in many, many ways um, and not alive with a sort of professional class, alive in many, many ways, um, unless the parish is, is, you know, really understood to be this sort of territorial circumscription of the portion of the people of God. But if you don't have that, if you have people who go where they want to go and you can't, then it's harder to depend upon people. And oftentimes the parish, you know, some parishes become much, much bigger and then you really ha- have needs. So the par- those parishes that I'm talking about were very, very small. But if you don't have a parish of only a few hundred families, yeah, you need someone to coordinate religious education and to assist the pastor in assessing the sort of sacramental suitability of young people and disposition of young people. I mean, you do need those things. So the the size of parishes, the mobility of parishioners today and the size of parishes does not allow for um, this sort of idyllic vision of everyone uh, sort of pitching in to make everything happen because well, the pastor on. needs more help than that, and oftentimes more specialized help than that. Help from someone who has certain kinds of expertise. I don't. I don't accept, and I cannot accept that the the sort of big government model is is the norm, and the idea that you have what you call a sort of small parish secretary or part time staff and everything else is volunteers is this sort of idyllic. You know, well, I don't think w- it should be that way, but I think that's reality. No, it's not reality. This is my exact point, is it's not reality anywhere in the church except in the suburban U.S. Okay. So it's not fair to say that, oh, the, what you're talking about here is this crazy, you know, dream that you know you just can't have. It's like th- That's how most of the church functions. Sure. But if I'm Father Ed and I get assigned to a large, par- a large suburban parish where people come and go according to their perception of the thing, and I don't have time... To coordinate a lot of things, and I don't have the kind of thick culture that comes from geographic proximity that allows me to rely on a lot of active people engaged in the life of the parish. I need I, I need that professional class. I honestly, you, God you need do. It but again, this is what I was saying. My basic ministerial obligations. I, I agree. But, but again, this goes back to what I was saying about having this becomes both co- its own cause and effect. You see, need I it. Why you need it cause. to sustain the things that are responding to a disengaged body of laity who are supposed to be the only defining characteristic of the parish in the first place. Now, I totally accept that where people are parish shopping or whatever, if the if the mentality of the place, of the parish, of the pastor, of the ministry is effectively one of sacramentalization, which is you're, you're all restaurant shopping. So the important thing is that I give you the menu you want, and then you'll all come to my restaurant that i'll make sure i say the liturgy the way the people the market i'm trying to capture likes it i make sure i have the right music i use the right hymnal and you're basically your understanding of how to um attract and sustain the faithful in your parish is well i've got to give them the right stuff so that i attract the right 
consumer for the product that I'm offering, that's a flawed mentality that, again, if the definition of the parish is a portion of the people of God, the, the, the two sides of the coin that is the sole function of the parish is one, the sacramental life binds together the communion of the people who are the parish, that that is the thing that sustains them in their common mission, which is outward facing. And so, yeah, I suppose you can say, if I'm Father X, I need all these things to keep the keep all the programs going and stuff because I don't have the people to make it work. Excuse me, I'm 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 unwell, so I'm coughing from time to time. Hence the pauses. Um, you can you can you can have that argument, and I understand it, but again. If, if you arrive at a point where you're saying, well, I don't have the people to sustain the programs, so I need the staff to sustain the programs, I don't have the people to sustain, it's like, again, we've gotten to the point where the institutional level is top-heavy. And that that, that is itself well, I, symptomatic, isn't it? I think I'm saying something a little bit different, because I'm not saying um, because people are consumeristic about parishes, you have to, you know, Father thinks he has to make the parish that people want. Maybe there's a little bit of that. But what I'm saying is, because people are consumeristic about parishes, there is there is in suburban American Catholicism, which is a thing, an expectation among many people that they will come to a place that they will not have to put very much into that place or that they will not have to put very much into that place stably and that their children will be catechized, sacramentalized, you know, and um, and otherwise sort of entertained in, in youth group. And, uh, and so... There is a set of needs, and if we if we think that registration confers the rights and duties of being a parishioner, there is even a set of sort of rights associated with being in the parish, but not a sort of concomitant realization of duties. And as a consequence of that, of course, the pastor needs a a, a professional curia in order to sort of fulfill not something which is um, designed to make the most marketable parish, but um, to fulfill his most basic sort of sacramental obligations to the people. Maybe, but again, I would yes. say that... Well, hang on. <laughs> <coughs> what I would say is, um, if that is the motivation, and that is the, that, that's the circumstances that a priest is finding himself in, fine, but what you are doing is managing decline. You are forestalling yes. the inevitable. Because sure. sooner or I, right. later, you will lose the money along with the people that you've already lost. Mm-hmm. Um, not the, the particular pastor is responsible for losing the people in the first place. But I'm just saying, in terms of that's that that's the parochial reality, is that the tide has gone out on numbers of priests. It's going out on numbers of baptisms. It's going out on numbers of faithful, number of mass attending people, all of that. And so the idea that you can sustain a professionalized parish curia to supply what a healthy, active community of the faithful would otherwise spontaneously provide for itself. I understand how you get trapped in that. But again, the model is not sustainable. The model is a historical aberration. It is a a fluke in the same way that a generation in this country um, grew up and worked and got to retire at 65 with decent pensions. And we will never have that. I mean, like, you know, there was, you know, great. There was a lucky generation that lucked into this. But you know what? This is not how the world has ever been. And it's not how the world will be. Okay. So So, on that. but, But so my point is that, yes, I understand what you're saying. And I understand the motivation there and why a pastor feels that, you know, well, I've got, I need all of these things to keep up the basic level of provision that people are still turning up enough to expect, 
but not enough to collaborate effectively and with the right spiritual advice. Or even to know that they're supposed to. Or even to know that they're supposed to. But here's the thing. You can, you can, you can be proactive or you can be reactive, but either way, the same reality is going to hit eventually everywhere, which is this model is not sustainable and it will not be sustained because the money simply will not be there to sustain it in the decades to come. And the reality every parish community is going to have to wrestle with is, well, these things just simply will not be provided then. Not because of ill will on anyone's part, because there won't be anyone there to do it and there won't be any money there to pay people to do it. So I think that's true if your idea, if, if, if I think that's true, all of the things that you said is true if your idea of the mission of the Paris Curia is that they are effectively service providers for a consumer parishioner base. Well, but, isn't that what Gladys and Marjorie are doing? Well, yes, but I think there is another model, which is why I think that there can be sort of, and I've seen actually, I think that there can be and there is um, a, another way of looking at the mission of the parish curia, which is not the direct provision of services, but serving effectively as, let's call them super leavening agents in the page uh, in the parish, serving as catalysts and enablers of deeper um, involvement and missionary engagement on the part of the parishioners. So Gladys and Marjorie didn't do it, right? They were just mad that I was there and they weren't very next to me and I felt stupid. It was a job but, for them. Right, right. But if the parish curia feels that it is its job. And I think this is a shift that's happened in the even the formation of people who have these kinds of jobs that is actually occurring. If the parish curia feels that it's its job um, to better enable Christians to live at their vocations rather than to sort of provide them a set of services called catechesis and a liturgical experience, then there's something really there there, right? So parents are the primary educators of their children. If the parish curia replaces that by just like, yeah, drop your kids off for CCD and don't ask too many questions. That's that's bad. That's wrong and and counterproductive and ultimately is a managed kind of, or sa- sort of sacramentalization on the path to decline. But if the parish curia perceives that it is its job and its mission, um, that it shares the mission of helping to equip parents to be catechists of their children or or um, inviting parents and children into a kind of catechetical relationship with each other and facilitating that, that's not managing decline. That's actually renewing something which didn't, you know, or reestablishing something which has been long dormant. It's actually enabling a deeper kind of Catholic identity for parishioners and drawing them from the consumeristic mindset that might bring someone into suburban Catholicism into a deeper and more kind of committed relationship to the parish and to the life of the church. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, but I would so, say the, the way that you get that is the whole of parish life has to be oriented towards the evangelization has to be oriented towards the uncomfortable, toe-curlingly so at times, experience of announcing Jesus Christ. Because only if the entire life of the parish is rooted in that, and only if people are forced to confront that, no, this is what the Christian life means. The Christian life doesn't mean turning up for an hour on Sunday, maybe in your nice golf shirt and khaki shorts, and sitting quietly through Father's homily, and then doing your best not to, you know, commit adultery and overtly steal the other six days of the week and to generally try and be a nice person. Unless that mentality is entirely replaced with a culture which is explicitly evangelical, not in the sense of whatever weird cultural baggage the term evangelical has, but I mean just in the sense of evangelizing, the proclamation of Christ, then I don't think there's any hope for 
for survival for the, our parochial model. Well, I, I think that's I think that's fair. And and to kind of come back to, in a, to kind of come back to the notion of a parish curia, one of the things that has to change there is. Um, the way in which parish curial staffers, so by that we mean DREs and youth ministers and, I don't know, other kinds of things like that, are, are assessed and evaluated. So if the youth minister is evaluated by how many teens he got to the thing, the lock-in or the, you know, um, chastity talk or whatever, um, it, 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 it's, uh, it's a, it, he's only sort of driven towards make attractive these things and sort of pressure, pressure, pressure to get numbers and they'll come and maybe they'll have, you know, we'll say, oh, we're sowing seeds because maybe it'll have some meaningful impact on their life or not. Um, but if, if and if the DRE is sort of only um, assessed by like, well, how many kids did completed their service hours before confirmation, you know, then Do it's like, well, started in service again, hours. Oh no, my. service hours are an aberration, but if it's like, oh, how many kids completed their service hour? Well, that that is effectively a waste of an employee. But if the assessment becomes, um, well, to what extent did we equip other people for living elements of the Christian life which they were not previously living? To what extent did we equip parents to be catechists of their children? To what extent did we uh, equip families to sort of discern their own apostolic call and then to live it? Um, To what extent did we sort of better equip the entire parish to live um, the... the, um, works of mercy, and and, uh, and to what extent, most especially, did we equip the parish and commission the help to commission the parish to discern the movement of the Holy Spirit in their own lives and the apostolic work to which they're being called? If those become the metrics of assessment, then the parish curia can be incredibly effective, as the diocesan curia can be. If the diocesan curia is, how can we help pastors and school administrators um, sort of better fulfill those Catholic missions and, and their Catholic missionary identity and better discern what the Lord is calling them to do and help them to achieve it, those things can be extremely effective. I don't think it is true that it is sort of um, constitutive or essential to the notion of a lay professional class that they're um, that, that they um, engender this consumeristic mentality. I think it has a lot to do with the way such persons are commissioned, assessed, trained, evaluated, and trained. Maybe. I don't think there's anything constitutive about the idea of a lay professional class and the conception of a parish. No, it's certainly not constitutive, but I've seen this thing that I'm talking about where... I know you've seen this thing you're talking about, but I guess what I'm saying is you can argue whether or not it can be turned to a a more perfect... But it ought to be. I mean, I think it has to be because these things exist. Well, they do exist, but my point is that they're not going to exist. Most pastors... Well, I think that's a question of... That's sort of the question. You're saying they're not going to exist, and I'm saying, but... um, the parish can have ongoing vitality if the parish is oriented towards its mission. And that can or cannot include a parish curia, but a parish curia can be a very <clears throat> useful part of achieving that end. I, I guess... you seem to think that it can't be. Maybe, maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe I'm, you are. Maybe I'm approaching this from too much of a, a background where I find the entire idea very strange and very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um and if so, then maybe I'm wrong. But my sense of it is either the model will continue to be badly lived, as it is in places where Marjorie and Gladys can be rude to you when you come in off the street and just say, I- I'd like to see a priest, please. Is that possible here in the Catholic Church? Um, or it can be with the best of will and the best of intentions and in all the ways that you've just outlined turn towards a good but here's the thing i would say if it's done 
continue to be done badly on such a scale that it continues to be the sort of cliche of the American suburban parish experience, then it is unsustainable and it will collapse. Absolutely. If it is turned to the good, as you have outlined, then it will create the kind of community that will question whether or not that's a model it should continue to use. See, that's the part that I don't agree with. Because if the if the community continues to grow... If a parish grow, is paying a six-figure payroll and it has a large community base that is active and engaged in the life of the parish, at a certain point, you say, well, wait a minute. Do we need to pay a quarter of a million dollars in salaries when we could actually give the cash to external ministries like... Oh, you're thinking too small. Because you seem to think there's a cap on the growth of the parish. Well, you're the one who's got a cap on the growth of the parish. It's the church. It's a cap on the growth of the parish. It's territory. Yeah, but in in the most of the large suburban parishes of America, the um, percentage of parishioners is a ve- of active mass going parishioners at the moment is a very 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 low percentage of the p- persons living in the territory. Sure, right. So yeah. the cap is the the cap is so far in the distance that um, I think that you know if territorial parishes, if the large suburban t- territorial parishes of American suburbia, you know were were somehow twenty percent practicing Catholic. They'd need, you know, a dozen more masses, and at the same time that they needed a dozen more masses, they'd need uh, dozens, dozens more catechists, or you know, family catechist facilitators, or, or whatever it is. They'd need sort of dozens more. I know you love sort of youth ministry stuff. They need dozens more people facilitating youth ministry opportunities, right? If the parish grows, it will. Oh, if the parish grows and the parish curia is in some way a part of the pastor's ministry of, of helping people to sort of fulfill their Christian life and Christian apostolate, then the increasing vitality of the parish would actually necessitate or, or, or could actually encourage more of that because there's so much life in the parish and these are the people who are helping to manage it. Maybe. Right? I, You're skeptical about that. I am that. very skeptical of it. You're skeptical about that because I think for a few reasons. One um, that I hear you saying is sort of your ideal of the parish is the, the uh, you know, a pastor and the pastor's secretary and then lots of people engaged in a communal way. And I think that is a vision, but um, if... It's not a if, vision. It's a it's a parochial right, reality I've lived right. in. I think that, yeah, and, and I, it is a parochial reality that you've lived in. And I think it's a true thing and a real thing, and, but um, it, it was not the decision of pastors to create potentially ginormous mega parishes by the, by the circumscription of suburban parish boundaries. But those things exist. And if they're really to fulfill their mission, now I'm not talking about some sort of like, what's that thing in Maryland that's like that stupid mega church? The guy has written all these books about how to be more Protestant. Oh, the crazy super online guy? Yeah, super guy. How to yeah, be that's more fake. Protestant, whatever. Yeah, that's fake. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying if if a large Catholic parish, if a geographically sort of large and population dense Catholic parish is really doing its thing, of course it's going to need more assistance for the pastor and more coordination and more facilitation. If if the lay ecclesial minister, so to speak, I don't like that term, but if the lay ecclesial minister who is the DRE is helping to train the people who are going to be catechists and helping to helping parents to learn how to catechize their children and more people are practicing the faith, you're going to need more of that. Just <clears throat> by necessity, you're going to need more of that. And Maybe. that's not a bad thing. In the same way that if people are, in the same way that if the diocese is growing, um, see, this is the thing. If the diocese were growing and you needed more tribunal judges because more people wanted to get their marriages straight, you, you wouldn't think, nah, eventually this thing is going to be so successful, you're not going to need any tribunal judges. That's that's silly. 
Um, no, uh, right? look, you have it, have to have the expectation that success begets certain requirements. Maybe, as, as but, the pillar continues to grow, thanks to our subscribers, we'll not only need more journalists, but we'll also need more administrative infrastructure, and that's only natural. Uh, <sighs> otherwise, at a certain point, our administrative in, our lack of administrative infrastructure, and we've experienced this, hinders our growth. We, you and I, are in that point now where the pillar is growing and we have a set of administrative responsibilities and a set of journalistic responsibilities there are three of us we would all like to be doing much more journalism um but we have to balance that with administrative responsibilities i hear what you're saying but again the pillar could never just be all journalists journalism around because who would pay the bills indeed um (laughs) I hear what you're saying, but again, what you're not taking into account is that the American suburban big parish model that we're talking about is an aberration, both historically in this country and contemporarily across the church in the world. And so what you're arguing is that actually what we have got in the United States, albeit a flawed and in some cases, and indeed many cases, phenomenally ineffective and off-putting parochial experience is in fact the secret sauce and that this no, is I'm not at all that's ridiculous that's a, that's ridiculous i'm not, I'm not trying that. to be the ridiculous pairs, jd i'm trying well, to understand you, what you're saying i'm saying i am saying very- we have this model that is historically an aberration for this country is currently an aberration in the lived parochial experience of the church across because the world people are living in a new way which is in cul-de-sacs I, we may not like the people in cul-de-sacs but they do i understood Right. I'm just saying, this is a model that hasn't existed anywhere before, doesn't exist anywhere else now, well, then and I'm saying, those two things being both true, it seems obvious to me that this is a, a weird <laughs> right. circumstance that is yes. going to pass away. This is new, and so it must be bad. I no, mean, it's this, not as new, well, so it must be just... bad. It's, it's relatively new, and it doesn't exist anywhere else, and it I doesn't a... seem to be working. I had a classmate in the I had a classmate in Canada Law School from the Congo. Uh, um, his name was Jean-Claude. It, he didn't finish with us because he never did his homework. But I had this classmate um, in, in Canada Law School. I think he eventually finished his license, but he never did his homework. His name was Father Jean-Claude, and he's from the Congo. And uh, Father Jean-Claude's parish before he came to Canada Law School was roughly the size of Connecticut. The way that Father Jean-Claude's parish worked was very, very different from the way that suburban American parish works and the way that the English guy in his half, you know, sauce secretary or whatever it is that you said worked um he drove around and in order to sort of facilitate the effective use of his time as the parish sacramental minister he had a driver not not in a limo but in like some sort of a you know you know what i mean some mm-hmm. the car like for the roads and stuff you know he had he drove around and in each of the villages in his parish was a catechist and that catechist not only taught the faith but had responsibility for certain kinds of pastoral care for community organization for um helping people you know even to sort of facilitate uh child care and these kinds of things the catechist had a certain kind of pastoral care for for the village and then there was another another he was paid he was a professional person well he father jean claude had a big lay professional staff spread out across his parish interesting um, and bishop yeah, george and, whose last name i never tend to pronounce because i always get in trouble but the it was bishop of an extremely remote diocese in india that i had the pleasure of interviewing once and, and who started his entire diocese from scratch in total right. terra nulla um and he did all walking on foot evangelizing it's the same thing he has a he the entire concept of parish or village or christian community life is sustained by 
lay catechists who literally right. build the church. And the Pope just affirmed that and gave a right for the commissioning of the thing or whatever. So in those places, you have a sort of large population within a parish and then a bunch of um, a professional Catholic lay Catholic class who does stuff. Um, and uh, you're what, saying, what, well, no, no, no I didn't say paid. The, the ones in Father Jean-Claude's, I have known many um, sub-Saharan African catechists who, who make, who, who that is their living. Okay. They don't make a great living, but I have known many sub-Saharan African catechists who, for whom that is their living. Um, uh, so you have a lay professional class and that is the way in which the parish operates. Um, that is the way in which the parish operates because it is responsible to, responsive to the way in which people are living. Um, the way in which people are living in the territorial parishes uh, of suburban Colorado is such that um, if even a relatively small percentage of them come to mass, it will be far too much for the pastor and he will need administrative infrastructure. And so the church is figuring out right now how to respond to that. And what I hear you saying that just drives me batty is, yeah, but if if uh, but that's different from anything before, which it's actually not, because I just told you about the Congo, and you told me about the guy, the walking guy in India. Um, that's different from anything before, and therefore we have to be very very concerned about it, and it will pass away. No, in as long as people will live in this way, I'm not saying I think it's healthy for people to live in cul-de-sacs, but in as much I and and living in one, I increasingly realize how unhealthy it is in certain ways. But in as much as that's a reality, the parish has to respond to that reality. So what is it that you want? I, I, I don't think having the conception of the parish as a place that requires a larger institutional footprint and a larger payroll and staff numbers as a necessary and dependent facilitator and product of its own growth is either likely or sustainable. I don't. I it think feels like that's sort of just an instinctual and visceral dislike for the notion of it. It's neither of those things. I mean, it might be instinctual, but it's not visceral. Because you don't have you don't have that same feeling about the diocese. You would laugh if someone said that the diocese shouldn't hire more tribunal judges when when the diocese. Uh, on, the, on the contrary, I have told you before that I think that dioceses have to completely revisit what it is they do at the chancery level. I wouldn't say in the. That's in, why I'm talking about the tribunal. That's yeah, but why not the I'm tribunal because the tribunal is like. proper and irreplaceable, and you can't do anything about that. That 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 is a, that is a governing function. The necessity you can't of it. You recognize the necessity. The judicial vicar could be the sole judge on all the cases, but you recognize that the more cases it gets, the less likely it is that the judicial vicar can do all the cases himself. Right? I mean, he can't. Right, but also I would say in the chancery that in many dioceses they need to start rethinking the way that they do Catholic education. And the that's a that totally different thing. I would agree with you completely. That's a totally different thing from this thing that I'm asking you to talk about right now. The judicial vicar can't do all the cases in the Metropolitan Archdiocese of Los Angeles, so we hire some judges. Do I think there should be a diocese as big as Los Angeles? No, actually. But that's not up to me. It's up to the Pope. It's also not up to the Archbishop of Los Angeles. So as long as he has it, he has to figure out how no, to provide for the saying, pastoral needs of the thing. No, hang on. You're you're boxing me into a corner and making me talk <laughs> about a totally false comparison. No, I'm not, I don't think I am. I've been very consciously referring to parish curias here because I think that they have, in many cases, a very unhealthy and ever-expanding bunch of roles, many of which don't need to be... Oh, I'm done. sure that's true. No, but that's but my point them... is saying, yeah, you can say that you can never get rid of the idea of a diocesan tribunal because it's a central governing function of a diocese. And you can tell me and I will believe you and I will agree with you that the there will always need to be a certain amount of administrative help to keep the records of the parish going. Fine. What about ministerial help? 
Maybe, depending. If and he you has can a even... big parish and he's good at it, Hang on. and more and more people are coming to Mass, but he can't get an assistant, Hang what's on. he supposed to do? Yeah, again, and maybe you do in those circumstances. You need some kind of catechetical help. Not arguing it. But there's a difference between saying there are some irreplaceable ministries of the parish that you might need professional help with to make sure that they're delivered in a, system, in a, in a um, systematic way. I'm fine with that. But that doesn't mean that you don't need to look at this entire model of a professional parish where you say, well, we have clerical staff making six figures. And say, I, is this... is this? I'm not aware of the parish staff or clerical staff are making six figures. I, aren't I? I could name you a parish right now on the East Coast of the United States where I know for a fact the parish secretary is making over $100,000 a year. Okay, well, I don't know about that. I won't I'm not name and shame because that's not right. But it I'm does happen. A, and I I bet you if I know one, there's no way it's an apparition. Look, which I have is been a longtime ecclesiastical libertarian and I am one. I think there's a lot of waste in the church at every level. But I also think that... What can be done in parishes is to rethink what the parish curia does rather than to say um, uh, the presence of a parish curia is in some way a sign of an unhealthy parish or unsustainable or not contributing to the life of the parish. I didn't say not contributing to the life of the parish. I didn't say that. No, I didn't say that. I want to be fair. I did not say that. I did say I think that the entire weird way that we have come up with a model for a big suburban American Catholic parish is, I think, an unhealthy product that does also, even with the best of intentions, feed an unhealthy culture within the pews, which is that there is an us and a them where the taxpayers, they're the civil servants, they do the work, we show up. Yes, and and all I would say in response to that is, if it is done poorly, that is true. And it is often done poorly. But it can be done well, and it ought to be. Everything that can be done well ought to be done well, J.D. Well said. All right. Well, that was very nice. Um, There's a document that we didn't talk about at all, but I wish we had. Because if you really want someone who knows what they're talking about on any of this stuff, read a document from the Congregation for Clergy called The Pastoral Conversion of the Parish Community in Service of the Evangelizing Mission of the Church. The Pastoral Conversion of the Parish Community in the Service of the Evangelizing Mission of the Church. It came out from the Congregation for Clergy um, in July 2020, which was a really dumb time to issue a document because, like, you know. There was no parish life in 2020. There was, there was, we were pretty busy in July 2020 with all of the things, so there wasn't that. Um, but uh, but that, that document, I think, sketches out a vision, which we would both agree with, about the direction of the parish. Yes, and you know um, what the direction of the parish is? Outward. Yes, I think we could all agree to that. Okay. Well, Ed, we didn't get to talk about um, Ukraine, but we will pray for the people of Ukraine. We didn't get to talk about Knoxville, but we will pray for the people of Knoxville. We'll be back when the day is new, and I'll have more ideas for you. And you'll have things you'll want to talk about. Well, we will never get to them. <laughs> uh, the, <clears throat> hold on. The, the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and J.D. Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor and Chief J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Lambirani. You thought I forgot about that content. I, I didn't think you had, but I kind of hoped. Okay.